Scripture says, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through faith, since he is always ready to make intercession for for them. Scripture says, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Paul wrote to Timothy, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, power and dominion, both now and forever. Amen. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to him. Our Lord, we are thankful for your plan of salvation, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was so certain that Scripture says it was from the foundations of the earth, from eternity past, that you had this perfect plan for our salvation, not based on our efforts, not our works, not our ritual. There's nothing in us for which you could be impressed or give approval. But you loved us in such a way that you gave your only begotten Son. You demonstrated your love toward us in that while you were sinners, Christ died for him, for us. And it is only by faith in him that we have everlasting life. So, fathers, we study today the importance and the significance of focusing our lives, our thinking upon the Lord Jesus Christ Help us to understand these passages and to put these things together, and may we recognize the areas where we need to uh, revamp and rethink and retool so that we can live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews. Uh, We are in Hebrews chapter 12. For those of you who are visitors, this is a study that we have been engaged in, sort of a topical study, a pause in our study of Ephesians. Uh, But it is an excellent study because it sets the stage for a lot of what, what Paul says in the last part of Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 down into the last part of this section in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, 9. So we are looking at these spiritual skills, and we're looking at occupation with Christ. To be occupied with somebody is to have our focus and our attention upon them. And so today's lesson comes out of the word that is used at the beginning of verse 2, translated looking unto Jesus. But it's not just a matter of glancing or taking a look. It's a matter of focusing all of our thinking upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so that's what it means to be occupied with Christ. So we've studied these spiritual skills in the past several uh, several months that we start off as sinners, and when we sin after we're saved, which probably comes usually within the first minute or two unless we fell asleep, and then we have to confess sin because when we sin, we're no longer walking with the Lord. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. Scripture uses a variety of phrases to describe the Christian life. But when this uh, takes place and we break that ongoing fellowship with God, then it has to be recovered. We don't lose our salvation. We simply have to admit or acknowledge our sin, and instantly God forgives us of those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Instantly, we are restored to that walk by the Holy Spirit. I like the term walking by the Spirit because it's an active voice verb. We are to walk by the Spirit. Other phrases that we use, uh, such as being in fellowship, had kind of a passive idea to it, or being filled by the Holy Spirit, kind of a passive idea. But the active side of that is to walk by the Spirit or to abide in Christ. And so that is how we grow. And if you're a newborn believer and you don't know much, then you're probably going to be enjoying that fellowship with God for maybe a nanosecond, and then you're going to commit some mental attitude sin, or you're going to commit some sin of the tongue or overt sin, and instantly you're not enjoying that fellowship anymore. You have two options in this life once you become a believer. The first is to walk by the Spirit. The other is to walk according to your sin nature. There's no neutrality. There's no in-between. It's either one or the other. And once we are no longer walking by the Spirit, then we have to be restored. So that's the importance of that stage. Then we begin to grow. We come to learn God's Word. And there's three parts to that. that are this, That's why I have those three on the same line. The first is the faith rest drill. We learn God's promises. We learn what God has said He will do. And so we claim those promises. We trust in them. And when we face certain situations, for example, you may be prone to worry, prone to anxiety. And so you memorize a passage like uh, Philippians 4, 5, and 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So what are you told to do there? You're told to, first of all, be anxious for nothing. But but sometimes it just crops up and all of a sudden you're worried again. You have some kind of anxiety attack or something like that. So what are you supposed to do? In everything, give thanks and commit it to the Lord in prayer and pray about it. And then as you do that, the result is that God is going to teach you how to trust and relax in him so that your soul is guarded to some degree from these sins. But you're still going to have these problems. We all do. We have a sin nature. So that's the faith rest drill. We do what God says to do. We pray. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. So the thing that you do is that you pray. You claim this promise. And what God does is then he will guard you with his peace. 
So grace orientation means that we come to understand that just as in salvation we did nothing to earn or deserve it, so in the spiritual life we do nothing to earn or deserve God's care for us. But if we do what God says to do, faith rest drill, then God is going to graciously take care of us. And in relation to what we're studying now with occupation with Christ, one of the key verses is the second one there, Second Peter 3.18, that we are to grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to come to understand what God, God's grace is and what it means. And that comes as a result of the study of Scripture and uh, coming to Bible class, learning how to think biblically. And that's the third thing is uh, on this line, doctrinal orientation. We orient our thinking to what the Word of God says. The reason a lot of Christians don't think the Christian life works is because they don't ever get fed the Word of God. They don't know the Word of God. They don't know any of the mechanics of how to live the Christian life. And the result is they think that all Christianity is is having a pep rally for Jesus on Sunday mornings. And, and, and that's just a distraction. Uh, we have to get into the Word. We are to, as uh, Hebrews says, study, to, or as Timothy said, Paul says to Timothy, study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly understanding the Word of truth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Okay? So we have to understand God's Word. If you don't have God's Word in your thinking, then how are you going to know how God wants you to think or how to, he wants you to live? So we have to be fed the word of God. This is why scripture says, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Sanctifying is another word for growing as a believer. Uh, how is that done, Jesus prayed? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. We des- desire the unadulterated milk of the word that we may grow by it. If, if we're not taking in the word, then, then we're not going to grow spiritually. And so we're not going to live or think or act any differently than the unsaved people around us. So that is foundational and fundamental. And as we do that, we begin to understand more and more about the destiny that God has for us as believers, especially church-age believers in this dispensation, because we are being trained to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom and establishes his messianic kingdom in the future. And so now we're basically in boot camp. We're in training. And the capacities that we develop in this life are the capacities that are going to be necessary for the position that he has for us when we are uh, with him. And then we advance. All through this, we're learning to love God. I'm not saying this, uh, this chart isn't saying that we don't love God until we grow, but we are babies, just like in regular life, our physical life. We have a love for our parents as children, a love for our parents as adolescents, but we really don't learn to truly, deeply, profoundly love them until uh, we get some maturity into us. And so uh, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus said that we are to love one another as he loved us. So we need to take time as we go through the scriptures thinking about how does Jesus love us? And then our response to that is to love him. That's occupation with Christ, learning to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And those three all go together and are interdependent, 
and interconnected. And the result is that we have joy, peace, stability, tranquility in our soul that Christ has given us. It's a fruit of the Spirit, just as love is a fruit of the Spirit. So we can't just make it make it happen. So first of all, we need to learn to be focused on Jesus, and that means we must first learn about who he is. Who, he, who is Jesus? We live in a world where most people talk about Jesus, but they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about why he came. They don't understand anything of the, of the numerous, over a hundred specific prophecies about him in the Old Testament. They don't understand that he is, uh, was uh, eternal. He's pre- he, lived, he had at appearances uh, as the angel of the Lord before his incarnation, that he's born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Why is he born there? What does that have to do with anything? What has to, why does he flee to Egypt? Why does family have to escape to Egypt? You know, all of these different things are important to understand, and you don't normally just pick them up by reading. You have to, we all have to be taught and come to understand this. So we have to understand who he is and how he loved us. Ephesians 5.2 says we are, the command is to walk in love. One of many different commands talking about our day-to-day, step-by-step Christian life. The metaphor is walking. We walk in the light of his word. We walk by the Holy Spirit. We walk in love. How? What's our pattern? Our pattern is Christ. If you don't know Christ, you can't walk in love. If you don't understand the love that God has for that Christ has for the human race, then how can you love one another as Christ loved us? We have to spend time in in the word. So we are to walk in love. Love is to characterize our lives. A love for one another. And this isn't the syrupy sentimental uh form of love that is what the world thinks of as love. You don't see that kind of characteristics in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved us and he gave himself for us. So it talks about a mental attitude of love and an action that relates to the mental attitude of love. And so that teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then uh, once we learn how he has loved us, then we begin to develop that reciprocal love for him. But to love him, we have to come to know him, not just what is in films or what is in storybooks, but we have to read the scriptures because the scriptures tell us about Jesus. And then we come to know him because of the written word of God. See, Jesus is the living word of God. This is what John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we have to understand what that means. And Jesus Christ is the living word of God. And so because he's the living word of God, we also know that it's his thinking that is in the written word of God. So we need to learn how Jesus thinks, and we need to learn how to live to please him. 
1 Corinthians 2.16 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? This is a rhetorical question. Some people would answer that says, Well, we don't have any idea. Yes, we do. It's the next phrase. We have the mind of Christ. It's the written word that we have. This is, this is the thinking of Christ, uh, what he wants us to understand uh, about him. Paul uses the same phraseology in the passage we've been studying on Thursday night in Philippians. Let this mind, same word, let this mind, this way of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there it's talking about that mental attitude of humility, which is part of grace orientation and is fundamental to being able to truly love anyone. If you are not don't have humility, then you're arrogant. And love is not arrogant. So it's vital to understand these things. Jesus tells us about a metric for understanding how we love him. So a lot of people just think that metric is, oh, I just love Jesus. But they don't know anything, but they have a lot of sentimental gush. And they're just going to gush on about him and sing these uh, simpering little uh, Bible courses you have in a lot of churches that don't have any biblical content. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, he's not talking about legalism. He's talking because when we trust Christ as Savior, we enter into the family of God. And just like your biological parents or your physical parents, the parents who brought you up, uh, expected you to obey them out of respect. So in the family of God, we are expected to obey the Lord out of respect. And as we grow, it becomes love. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. 1421, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So you have two basic things here that you have to understand. Number one, God loves the whole human race in an agape love so that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are adopted into God's royal family. But then as a newborn baby, we have to grow in various spiritual capacities, including our love for the Lord. And so Jesus here tells us, look, you have his commandments. We have the written word of God. Uh, he's not specific. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. He's not talking about uh, what is going on in the, in the writings that God gave for Israel under the old covenant. He's talking about the commandments that he has given, especially to his disciples in this section. John 13 through John 16 is what's called the upper room discourse. This is the night before Jesus went to the cross. He's teaching his disciples what the spiritual life is going to be like after the cross. And so he's talking about these commandments that he's, some that he's given um, in his incarnation at that time and others that will be written down in the epistles. He says, he who has my commandments, we have them in the word of God and keeps them. It is he who loves me. 
So it's not just sentimental emotion. It has to do with thinking, knowing, understanding, and applying God's word. He says, and and a result of that is the one who loves me, that is by keeping my commandments, uh, he will be loved by my father. So this isn't talking about the kind of love that God had for us as unbelievers. This is talking about advancing in our spiritual life and our intimate fellowship with God. This word fellowship is not some passive concept, and it's not just social interaction with other believers. The word basically has the idea of two people who are joined together by a, and working toward a common goal. It's an action word, but it comes across to us as more of a social word. But the word in the, in the Greek has that idea of a partnership toward, in working toward a goal, and the partnership is our working toward the goal of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. So we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then will, uh, as we study God's Word, He'll use that Word in order to mature us. Uh, He teaches us His Word, shows us how to apply the Word, and gradually over time He produces spiritual growth, and that is going to be manifested in certain character qualities indicated by uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father. That is a more of a relational love that is the result of spiritual growth. And then Jesus says, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to show up on a piece of toast in the morning. And you're going to look at that and go, oh, I see Jesus in my toast. Go back to bed, take your medication, wake up the next day. Jesus will manifest himself to us through his word. As we study his word, we're going to come to learn more and more. Not long ago, I told the story of, of a uh, parishioner in a church that was pastored by R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was a well-known Bible teacher uh, at the turn of the last century, and he was also uh, president of the uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola. He had a man come to him and said, oh, pastor, I just get so bored. I just can't read. You want me to read my Bible every day, but, but, but I get kind of bored. And, and you want me to read it more than once. And, you know, I, I'm just not getting that much out of it. And, and so Tori said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to just, let's just take a small book. Let's take Second Peter. And I want you to go home and I want you to read it 12 times every morning and 12 times at lunch and 12 times at night. And then, you know, t- come back and talk to me in two weeks. And uh, so the man went home, and he did that, and he came back to Tory two weeks later. He says, well, I want you to know that, that I can barely read my Bible anymore because the tears that I have shed as I have read this have blotted out the page. And so the ink has, that I've written my notes in has run, and it's just get turning black. And I told my wife about this, and she said, yes, the page on the, in the Word may be turning black, but your life is turning white. We read something over and over again and focus on it. Don't just have your eyes scan the words. We all do this. All of a sudden, it, a thought develops from what we read, and 
you know, we're, my, our, our mind goes somewhere else and our eyes scan the next five verses, but then we don't remember what we just read. Focus on the Word. So as we do that, Christ will manifest himself to us through his word. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's not salvation. This is talking about fellowship, that God the Father, God the Son, abide in us. The Holy Spirit fills us with his word. Those are, those are terms related to our ongoing spiritual growth and intimacy with the Father they don't don't have to do with getting getting saved. And then verse twenty four. Notice all of these verses are in John fourteen fifteen. It's all and how many different times Jesus says it. Repetition is important in case they weren't paying attention the first three times. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So this is what it means to be occupied with Christ, to focus upon him. So last time we started with uh, developing this from four scriptures, and they are Second Peter 3.18, which we covered last week. Uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, we'll begin with that uh, this morning. And First Peter 1.8, and then Philippians 2.5 through 11, which I've been covering on Thursday night, so we'll just give it short shrift on Sunday, Sunday mornings. Second Peter 3.18, we have the uh, command. It's a present imperative. Present imperatives mean that it is supposed to be a continuous characteristic of our lives. It's our standard operating procedure. Grow. We are commanded to grow. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, that we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word that we may grow by it. So that tells us, he's already told his audience how they are to grow. Now he tells them they are to grow. Grow uh, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that word knowledge is a general term for knowledge, which includes just learning the basic academic uh, facts about uh, who he is and when he was born, the things he did, reading through the Gospels, understanding that. But then as we learn it, we apply it under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and it leads to a more intimate knowledge with Christ, which is what the term epinosis describes. So we are to grow in is not within grace and knowledge. It really has the idea of by means of the grace and knowledge. So we have to have grace orientation. We have to come to understand what grace is and also the basic knowledge that develops into mature knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what's involved. And and it's just so sad today that, that so many people... Uh, don't understand uh, so much about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we I have spent, that's why I've got a series on John, a series on Matthew, because Bible churches tend to be weak on the Gospels, but also numerous studies on the Old Testament prophecies related to the uh, coming of the Messiah. Uh, I have one series that's audio only from a few years ago on Christology, and I'm trying to take some of that material and Make, include that within what I'm doing on Thursday night so we have video and uh, and some slides there. 
But that's, that's the foundation. We have to know who Christ is. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4 gives us the, you know, one of the primary focal points of understanding uh, occupation with Christ. Occupation with Christ means to, to love the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to get to the point where we realize that we're to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, many of us have careers in many different areas other than in some sort of professional Christian ministry. You may be a school teacher, you may be an accountant, you may be involved with the internet, you may be involved uh, digging ditches, you may be uh, a taxi cab driver, you may be uh, just a, a, a basic worker bee for some major corporation. But God has brought each one of us into the body of Christ, and at that instant that we were saved, we were given spiritual gifts, spiritual endowments to enable us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So that from whether you realized it or not, at the instant of your salvation, God was laying his claim to your life and to mine that no matter what else we did in life, it was all to be geared towards serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God has a plan and purpose for our lives, and it goes beyond just what we may doing may be doing for 40 or 48 or 60 hours a week in terms of our professional employment. Sometimes there can be things that come together, and we do both at the same time. Other times, the work that God has given you may be simply to give you financial resources so that you can support missionaries. Uh, as you get more established in your career, it may be giving you the opportunity to go on some short-term missions trips, to be involved in things like Camp Arete or what, uh, what Jeff is doing down, uh, down in Brazil. Or it could be any number of different opportunities. This church runs... Uh, and the uh, Dean Bible Ministries runs on the wonderful sacrifice of numerous volunteers. And and this church, and people say, oh, no, no, this church is about your teaching ministry. My teaching ministry stands on the shoulders of dozens of volunteers who spend a tremendous amount of their time uh, making sure that the Internet works, making sure that things get uploaded onto the Internet, making sure that uh, the books get printed and published, making sure that uh, all of the administrative details get taken care of. And, and that's just wonderful. You have no idea the ways in which God can use you and um, you don't really learn it until you start saying, well, there's a need here, I'll do it. And then you find, you know, I really don't like doing that. And then you start, somebody says, well, why don't you do this? You go, oh, yeah, I really like that. And so that's how you begin to figure out what your spiritual gift strengths and weaknesses are. You know, I remember I had the opportunity growing up as a, as a kid uh, I remember probably around 13 or 14 volunteering at church for vacation Bible school, and I don't remember uh, a whole lot about that except some of the games we played. But at the same time, I was involved in a Christian camp, and I got to be 14, and I could go spend an extra week at camp, not get paid anything, uh, but I got to wash dishes uh, three times. And I thought, boy, I'll be glad when I can get promoted out of this. So I did. So I had to shovel manure down in the barn. That was a big promotion. 
But, you know, eventually I was, I was Wrangler one summer, and I did all kinds. I learned all, everything I learned about pastoral ministry, I learned working at a camp. You know, being a cabin counselor for a week, you only have maybe eight or nine or 12 sheep, but, but that's your starting point. So, so, and I began to realize that, okay, there were certain things I really enjoyed doing. I did not enjoy washing dishes or organizing certain things or keeping things clean, but I really enjoyed learning the Word and teaching the Word. And, you know, that's how, that's how it starts with all of us. So it's just a process of spiritual growth. So we come to Hebrews chapter 12, and we started briefly on this this last week, and that is that it, it, uh, Paul begins here by saying, therefore we also, we being, including all believers, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the all of these Old Testament saints that he mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, starting with Adam and working his way uh, all the way down until he reaches a uh, summation point uh, down around um, verse 32. I'll just start there. He's already listed a number of main he- uh, heroes of the faith, and then he says, And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. One of the things we learned there, most of those guys were more failures than they were spiritual successes. And yet God praises them for their singular successes. We just got through studying Judges on Tuesday night and saw that uh, Gideon led the people back into idolatry and Jephthah literally sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering to God because he just didn't understand enough of God's word. But God had used him already, and he trusted God for military victory. And also Samson, nothing good is said about Samson in um, in the book of Judges till you get to the very, very end of his life. He trusts God, but he was a womanizer, and he was a liar, and he was... Uh, uh, he was disrespectful to his parents. I mean, he's, he's, he's nobody's hero, but God says you are. That gives me hope. So we go on to read, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment, all of which would bring shame. Okay, but it wasn't shame to suffer for the Lord. We'll get back to that later. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us 
that is, receiving the promise of the Savior, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, in light of all of what these heroes are watching us, they are the great cloud of witnesses. And in light of what they have done, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's look at this. Starts off with this word, therefore. We all know that I like to say that you, when you see therefore, you have to see what it's there for. It's drawing a conclusion from that whole previous chapter, that the end of which I just read. But this is a different word for therefore. It is the word toigarun. It's a compound word from a, an article, toy, another conjunction, gar, which means to explain something, and then the word normally used for therefore, un. So the writer here uses this word. It's the only time in the scriptures that this word is used. And it stands out because of its distinctiveness. And, and that's why the Holy Spirit chose to use this word is to grab our attention. It's for emphasis. Therefore, there is something we should learn from all these examples. And that what we need to do, and the main command comes towards the end down here, that we are to run with endurance the race. Okay, but we have to understand a few couple of things before we can run that race with endurance. There's some conditions that must be met. The first is stated by this verb that's translated, let us lay aside. Grammatically, this is important. It is an aorist, that's a past tense in the Greek. It's an aorist middle participle. But that aorist middle participle precedes a command. When this happens, depending on context, context always rules, this is stated as a precondition for being able to run the race. When this kind of participle, an aorist tense, precedes, usually an aorist tense command, but in this case it's a present tense command, it says this is what you have to do before you can run the race with endurance. You have to strip off this weight. That's the idea of apotithemi. It's also used in James 1.21, where James says, lay aside all filthiness and the excess which wickedness is. In other words, both passages talk about the importance of stripping off this sin that, that distracts us and entangles us. Now, the first way in which we do that is by confessing sin. We're not going to do anything in the power of the Spirit if we're still uh, out of fellowship, not walking by the Spirit, but walking according to our sin nature. So we have to, first of all, strip off that weight through confession, and then we have to keep it off for a while. That takes time. doesn't happen overnight. I say this, when, when we are to abide in Christ, that word abide means to stay inside the house of fellowship where you're walking by the Spirit. And a lot of us just think of confession as the way to get back into fellowship, but we've got a revolving door at the front of the house, 
And we spend a lot of time just going around in circles. We never stay inside the house. The word abide emphasizes staying there, remaining in fellowship, remaining, continuing to walk by the Spirit for maybe a minute, then maybe two minutes, and then five minutes. And then we're really beginning to understand the Christian life. So we have to lay aside these uh, these sins so that we can run the race with endurance. That word for endurance is important here. It's a word hupomene. It's used over in James chapter 1 several times. There are a lot of parallels between this passage and what's in the epistle of James. Endurance means to hang. It, it, literally, it is hupomone. Mone comes from the same word meaning abide. It means to abide under something. Staying in the difficult situation, and you're able to do that by claiming promises, by being grace-oriented, by being doctrinally oriented, by keeping your eye on the future, keeping your eyes on Christ, loving one another. Those are the tools to stay in fellowship. And so we run with endurance the race set before us, the life, whatever that is, that God has set for us. And so we run that race with endurance. And notice in verse 2... We do this by focusing on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The cross was the race set before Jesus. And so we endure our race by focusing on him because he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. James 1, 2, and 3 says that in verse 1 it says we're going to encounter various trials or tests in this life but we are able to think of it in terms of joy because we know something. We know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. So when we look at these situations that we have to deal with that are usually brought on by getting distracted by our own favorite sins, then what we have to do is learn to focus on the Lord and to endure uh, without Okay, so we come to verse 12. How do we do this? Well, here it's focusing on focusing on Christ, looking unto Jesus. Now, that's not just glancing at him. This is a Greek word that has the primary meaning of directing our attention without distraction, fixing our focus on Jesus. He is the goal. He is the one. Don't get your eyes off of Jesus. Peter walked on the water as long as he had his eyes on Jesus. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus, then the cares of life indicated by the waves, the waves just about drowned him because he took his eyes off of Jesus. So that's fixing our eyes on Jesus is directing our focus and attention upon him. So we're to focus our thinking on Jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith. Now, I always had trouble understanding the word finisher. See, you can look at a, somebody who's completing a, a carpentry project and he puts a good finish on things. I'm thinking, Jesus is a finisher? How does this work? This, it, and, and I like this word. Other translation, modern translations change it. But in the New King James... It's important because it ties it to another concept in the Gospels. 
that uses the same root word. And so you can make the connection because of the similarity of the words. And so he's the author, which means he's the originator. He is the one who originated our faith by what he did at the cross. And then this word for finisher is this word on the right, teleotes. Uh, We see this word a lot. It means to complete something, to finish something, to uh, bring something to maturity, bring it to completion. Uh, At the cross, we see a form of this word used twice in John's gospel. In John 19.28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. That's the word. His mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. The jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, but put on a hyssop branch and held it onto his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So I like this new new um, living translation here, did a good job tying this together. See, he's saying, uh, John, the writer, is saying when Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, it's this same word. It's the perfect uh, passive participle of uh, teleao. So it's, um, it is a word that means it is completed. It would be put at the bottom of a bill when it was paid in full. So he'd say, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And so when he had tasted of the vinegar, he said, it is finished. That's why he's the finisher, because he finished. He completed our salvation at the cross. And so that ties it together. He's the author and the finisher. He is the one who completed it. So we see that T-E-L in these words uh, that we find uh, shows that they're from the same root, having the same idea. So we're to be focusing our thinking on Jesus the originator and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, that word joy, I just ran some searches the other day. Now, joy is not always used in a positive sense in relation to believers, but joy or rejoice or gladness, All there's two or three different words used in Greek and Hebrew used over 500 times in the Bible. And many of them are commands for us to rejoice, to be joyful, to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, that the believer is to be characterized by joy. So Jesus says that he's got to go through this suffering for the joy set before him, which is the salvation of the many. He will, many will be saved, untold millions are going to be saved because of his suffering for three hours on the cross. And so he has his eye on what the goal is going to be. And uh, this is a joy that is not a happiness. It is a joy that is really based in the supernatural character of God. Because in John fifteen eleven, Jesus said these things, that is what he's taught in John 13 through 16, These things I have spoken to you that my joy will remain in you. See, this joy isn't an ephemeral happiness. It's not emotion. 
It is a mental attitude of joy that comes because our focus is on the plan of God. And Christ wants our joy to be full. Romans fifteen thirteen, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Notice it's God who fills us. Same word that's used for the, that which the Holy Spirit does. He fills us with something. That you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Connect that with Galatians 5.22. Because we're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit does what? He produces love. It's, this isn't something you can manufacture on your own. It's produced supernaturally by God the Holy Spirit. Joy and peace. See, that's what you have in verse 13. Joy and peace in believing. This comes as a result of our using the problem, all of these different uh, spiritual skills in order to live, live our life. So because Christ focuses on that joy, that end game, he endures the cross and despises the shame. Now, this is really interesting here, this concept of shame. Paul has to talk to Timothy about this shame in 2 Timothy chapter 1 because it's easy for us to look at some of the things that might happen to Christians if they stand up for the Lord. They're going to be ridiculed. They may be persecuted. They may be um, uh, put in prison. And to the eyes of the world, that's something that is shameful. And apparently this was a problem that was bothering Timothy because it's mentioned several times in Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, And Paul is encouraging uh, Timothy, saying God God has not given us a spirit of timidity, uh, but of boldness and of courage. And so then in the next verse, uh, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner. See, Paul's testimony resulted in him being a prisoner, being put in chain, and all the negatives that would go with that. Uh, He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. That's the beginning of the paragraph. Then in verse 12, he says, for this reason, just before that, he talks about the fact that Christ has called him to be an apostle and one who would proclaim his word. And he said, for this reason, I also suffer these things. What things? The things of imprisonment, the things that would bring shame to many people. I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able, that's God's omnipotence, he is able to keep that, that is, he preserves our salvation. He is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And then a couple of verses later in verse 16, he says, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. So see, this wraps it all together that Timothy was maybe coming under the threat of persecution and uh, and he was fearful of that and he was uh, being motivated by embarrassment and shame perhaps by being put 
uh, in prison. And so we have this great promise in verse 12 related to our eternal security. So it is when we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ that we are able to put aside the, the, the problems of the world, the difficulties, the opposition, whatever it may be, and we can focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the originator and the completer of our salvation. So we've come to look at this passage as it lays the groundwork for understanding what it means to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, to focus our attention upon him, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to live for him. And we'll complete this when I get back from Israel. And it continues to think about our mental attitude in verse 3, for consider, which means to think about something, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. So we are to think about Jesus Christ. But if we don't know the word, if we haven't studied it, if we haven't been taught well, then we we have empty thoughts about Jesus. We just generate our own ideas about Jesus and then we worship it. That's just another form of idolatry, which probably most evangelicals are engaged in right now because they don't understand who Jesus is as he's presented in the scriptures. And that's what we need to do is become occupied with our Savior. We need to think about him. And the more we do, the more, as we sang in this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. The more that we put our focus on the Lord and his mission for us, then the things of earth just grow strangely dim. They lose their significance. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to study your word, to focus on the thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are to think like him that we are not being conformed, pressed into the mold of the world, but transformed uh, by your word. Our thinking is transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may learn who Jesus is and how he lived and why he lived, that we may learn to think as he thought and that our lives reflect his character that's produced by God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied. And if anyone is listening on the Internet or listening at some later time and they've never trusted Christ as Savior, they're not sure of their salvation, or perhaps they're not assured of their salvation, they worry about losing it. Uh, We know that, that salvation was accomplished by Christ on the cross and that he was the completer, the finisher of the work of salvation. So there's nothing we can add to it. And when we trust in him for salvation, instantly we are made alive again and we are entered into your royal family and that at that point you are the one who keeps us and no one is able to snatch us out of your hand. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.